On today's episode of Preaching Pediments, we discuss grace. In our churches, we love to use big words. We obfuscate our pedagogy through superfluous grandiloquence, manifesting hubris instead of demureness. See what I mean? Inconceivable. While I might have a speech impediment, I certainly do not want to have a preach impediment. These get in the way of God's message reaching our hearts and minds. Let's dig through those big words and learn something incredible. Before we get started in today's topic, let me remind you to go and check out EdenHollow.com. This is the company I started to start publishing some Bible study guides and spiritual books, but we're starting to branch out into some fiction and even talking to some other authors. We'd love to have you check out what's going on at EdenHollow.com. Now let's jump into today's episode. I'm privileged to discuss grace with Edwin Crozier today. He preaches down in the Tampa area of Florida at the Livingston Avenue Church of Christ. And he has written several workbooks uh, about various topics, but one of his really great ones is on grace. I know a lot of churches have used his material, and it really does challenge the way we think about grace and talk about grace and put grace back at the front of our teachings, which is something that really probably needs to be done church-wide. He's the father of four, has a wonderful wife, and does good work in the kingdom. Let's get going. Let's begin where we should begin, which is with a definition. Give us a definition of grace, and I'm going to caveat that with not the words unmerited favor. Uh, How would you define grace? So I I, I want to begin. I knew you were going to ask this question because I've been listening, and I know that's where you start. And uh, you've, you've done some words like propitiation, which of course nobody's ever heard, or when they have, they scratch their head and they ignore it. Grace, however, is a word that we hear all the time. We hear it every week in every sermon, in everybody. I mean, it's just, but, but like you said, we don't actually dig into it very often, but I I wanted to start with this quote, and this is going to be a really interesting thing here, Adam, because I'm quoting from a lecture that I recently heard from a brother named Cloy Sutton, who was quoting from a book written by a guy named Johnston, who was quoting from another fellow named Frederick Buchner. So this is like the fifth generation of this quote. But I think it applies. Here's, here's the quote. Take any English word, even the most commonplace, and try repeating it 20 times in a row. Umbrella, let us say. Umbrella, umbrella, umbrella. And by the time we have finished, umbrella would not be a word anymore. It will be a noise only, an absurdity, stripped of all meaning. And when we take even the greatest and most meaningful of words that the Christian faith has and repeat them over and over again for some 2,000 years, much the same thing happens. Sometimes the concepts of Christianity seem to be worn out, and as a result, we have a hard time paying attention to them. Familiarity may not breed contempt, as much as it breeds inattention. I thought that was a fantastic statement and really does apply to this concept of grace. It's a word that has been said over and over and over and over and over again, which can give us the feeling that we know what it means until we sit back and say, okay, define that for me. And you, you, said, you said, all right, I'm not going to let you say unmerited favor, which is kind of not fair because that's what everybody says is the definition. But again, unmerited favor has been used over and over and over and over again. What does that 
even mean? Our struggle in defining this is that we have a word that after 2,000 years of use in Christendom, throughout all of the church history and the different branches of churches, has come to have often a very technical, special meaning, and we have forgotten that it was actually a word before it was used in the Bible. And that's often the case for these biblical words. These were words before our authors were inspired to use them. And so when we take a look at the word grace, just trying to remember that it is a word, it was a word before the Bible used it, let's try not to pack in a whole bunch of, of, of 2,000 years of Christian history into it. And it really, the word itself really contains the ideas of, of, of gift and favor and all the things that are around that. For instance, it would also be used not only to talk about the gift, but the thanks that you would give for the gift. We find that uh, in, in lots of places throughout Scripture where it's uh, like in Luke 17 and 19 when Jesus tells the story about the servant who comes in and works, would the master thank his servant? No, he wouldn't. And interestingly, when we, when we consider that in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 through 15, He's talking about the grace that was given to the Corinthians that they might give to the, the, Jew, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And then the very last statement in that talks about giving thanks, that they would give thanks. It's the same word. You've got the word grace where it's translated there, and then you've got thanks. So this word is used in all of that. So that's trying to remember that here was a word that existed before our Bible authors used it. And so what that means is we're going to find it in the Bible, and it's not always going to mean what we have thought it to mean when we're talking about salvation. And I think it's important to recognize that usually when we're using the word grace, in our minds, we're thinking about salvation. We're not just thinking about how that word can be used. Okay, so now I think a good definition for using it when we're talking about the issues of salvation in, in that limited area that it's God's power to overcome sin. As I start piecing through the various things that the scripture says about grace, God's grace, as it's connected to the gospel, as it's connected to justification and salvation, I think a wonderful working definition is God's power to overcome sin, which is going to include two things. Obviously, the forgiveness. I have sinned. There's nothing I can do about it. God, in his grace forgives me by the death of Jesus Christ. Most of the time, people stop there. They just think about that. But I think as we go through Scripture, we recognize that there's even more to it than just forgiven sins that, that are past, but we recognize that grace is the strength God gives us to be delivered from sin in the future, to, to grow and overcome, to be able to defeat temptation, to have victory as Satan tempts us. What you have described about grace, uh, that it's a gift, that it is forgiveness, that it's the strength from God that he gives us to be delivered in the future, to experience future victory, all of that sounds good. Why is it that we struggle so much with the concept of grace when it is honestly such a, a grand and wonderful idea and concept? We struggle with the concept of grace because... 
for 2,000 years. It's been debated. It's been argued. It's been parsed. It has been uh, turned into a technical term. It has been uh, given baggage that wasn't necessarily a part of it when it was used originally and even originally in Scripture. And then just the religious debates between different denominations, different religious heritages, as they've tried to nail this down, and it, and it becomes a difficult thing. When I think we struggle with it, because there have been false teachings that surrounded the concept of grace, all the way back as far as Jude 4. Jude warns against using grace and perverting it to, to allow it to give us license to sin. And I think one of the main struggles that we often have today is that the way a lot of people teach grace sure sounds like license to sin. But rather than actually looking at what grace is for real, we just argue against a license for sin. And it's, uh, it's a bothersome thing. I think the other reason why we struggle is because when we think about grace, we have had a, had a tendency to only think about the moment of forgiveness rather than this ongoing strength of God to be with us to overcome. I, I also think part of it is, is uh, our view of salvation. You know, that, that salvation is about going to heaven someday rather than about becoming like Jesus. Salvation being, being healed and made whole like Jesus I have a sermon that I preach, Walk Like a Healed Christian, that takes a look at uh, at uh, the healing of the lame man in Acts chapter 3, and the recognition that uh, we, we have a tendency to think salvation equals going home to heaven. And what I try to point out to people is when you look at that, that lame man, salvation, healing meant being able to walk. Now, a person who walks is able to get home. And that is wonderful and that's great. But healing was not equivalent to going home. Healing, salvation, is equivalent to being made whole, which by definition means overcoming those the, the sin, the sin sickness, the uh, crippling nature of sin in our lives. And so we have a lot of folks that when they, when they hear about grace, they're afraid that what you're saying is in the end you'll go to heaven even though you've spent all your life dismissing God and his will and his word. Well, that's not grace at all. And that's not the grace that God offers. The grace that God offers is to get us walking and walking people go home. I like that idea. Grace has a purpose. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that because we do narrow the focus down so much to just being the gift, the gift of healing. But the point of the healing was to bring about a future that was different than the present. And I think we forget that when it comes to even grace in terms of salvation. The point of our salvation, the point of the gift of being saved from bad things, is not just to save us from bad things, but it is to produce a different future ahead of us. I've always said that grace that isn't attached to a, a lesson is not grace because grace always had lessons attached to it. Grace always had a, a purpose to it. Well, in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Uh, What that passage says is very simply Jesus didn't save us to take us to heaven. Jesus saves us so that we can be a people devoted to good works. And so grace, you talked about grace always has a lesson. God's grace does not simply say to us, it doesn't matter what you do. Hey, I've got it covered. What God's grace says to us is go and sin no more. I, I, I don't condemn you. I've forgiven you. Now, now pursue godliness, pursue self-control, per, uh, get rid of worldly passion, live in an upright and godly way in this present age because Jesus' purpose for grace and for saving us was to transfer us out of lawlessness and to be his people that, that's doing his work. Again, those people go to heaven. Those people get home. Those people will be with Jesus in eternity, uh, in his eternal kingdom. But Jesus wasn't just thinking about what's going to happen all the way at the end. Jesus was thinking about even now. You read a little bit further in Titus, and that point, I think, is even emphasized again. uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness which we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. That's where, as you pointed out, most people stop. Grace is about heaven. Grace is about being an heir. But it moves on and says, this is a trustworthy statement. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. And the reason I like that passage, especially in the context of what we're talking about, is it mirrors the passage that is probably most debated when it comes to the word grace, which is Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah where it talks about, for you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. But then you skip down to verse 10, and it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so while we are not saved because of works, we are saved for works. And those are two very different statements but you got to be able to figure out the balance between those two things to truly understand the purpose of grace. Whenever I teach on grace in the class book that I've written, along with my friend Dave Roberts, who's one of the shepherds up in the Brownsburg congregation in Indiana, one of the foundations where we start is in the Beatitudes, where Jesus talks about people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think one of the other reasons we struggle with grace is because Rather than hungering and thirsting for righteousness, I, I hunger and thirst for eternal pleasure. And, and what I mean by that is, again, we're just looking to the salvation in the end. We're just looking for, I, you know what, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to suffer torment and agony and pain. I want to have pleasure and convenience and, and, and I, want to, I want eternal bliss. 
And that's what I hunger and thirst for. When that's what I hunger and thirst for, trying to be saved by grace very much becomes just an idea of, I'm going to try to figure out how much I can get away with, and I hope God's grace will cover this, and, you know, can we figure out where the lines are? But when the foundation is, I am hungering and thirsting for righteousness, I want to be like Jesus, then being saved by grace is the means by which I get to be like Jesus. Which means being saved by grace, by definition, is not how do I have permission to sin. Being saved by grace, by definition, is not how much sin can I get away with because of God's grace. Being saved by grace is here's only one way that I get to be like Jesus, and that's by giving my allegiance to him, and it's through his grace that that's going to happen. We tend to be motivated by selfish ambition, and, that, and that's essentially what you're describing there. It's not that I want a life of service. I want a life of pleasure or an eternity of pleasure. So it's still about serving me and what I want and what I'm going to get out of it and what, what's going to bring pleasure to me. And that becomes the primary motivator, whether that be the avoidance of misery or whether that be the pursuit of pleasure, both sides of that are still about me. Mm-hmm. And I, I've gone back to looking at what the scriptures teach about heaven. It's less about our pleasure and more about the relationship we have with God. And we miss that sometimes in the traditional presentations of what salvation and inheritance and heaven are about. It's about streets of gold and trees that bear 12 different types of fruit. No, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's about being in the presence of God and having all your needs met so that there's no reason to separate yourself from the presence of God. Uh, those are two very different scenarios. Grace leads to relationship. I agree with what eternity is really all about. It's about being with God. And I love the statement. I don't know where it originated. Um, God, it's not, heaven is not where God is. God is where heaven is. I want to be with God. What that produces in me is a hunger for God, for God's things, for God's ways, for God's thoughts, for God's will, which again gets us back to the Beatitudes where Jesus started that seminal sermon hunger and thirst for righteousness, which in many ways is, is a hunger and thirst for God. And what Jesus points out there is that it's in the hunger and thirst, it's, it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that will be satisfied. I, I appreciate, and you know, every time this conversation comes up, somebody, uh, if, if, if all of that it gets gets kept in here, somebody somewhere is going to say, well, don't you think that it's a growth process? Sometimes we're motivated because of hell and heaven, but then we grow. Yes, I believe all of that. But I think the goal is we need to grow to that point. Uh, we yeah. we recognize as we grow, and that's the way it's been for me. I, I didn't, you know, when I was a teenager and I became a Christian, I, I wasn't necessarily thinking about what I've just presented. I knew I was a sinner and I wanted forgiveness, I wanted to be in Jesus Christ so that I could be forgiven and be with God for eternity. I, 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 there was that, but I certainly had a whole lot more of the avoiding punishment, pursuing pleasure idea, and it was a growth process. As I grew in Jesus Christ and as I have grown, it has become much more 
this idea of, I want to be like Jesus. I want to grow to become like God. I'm, I'm far short of that. But what I do know is that when I grow in my hunger and thirst for that righteousness, what he said is he's going to satisfy that. He's going to grow me. And ultimately, in eternity, as John points out in his letter, we don't know what we'll be like, but we'll be like him. He is going to produce that. So in Luke 17, verse 7 through 10, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant? By the way, that's our word grace. By the way, that's charis. Does he charis, grace? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. We've got to recognize that. When I praise God, I haven't done anything now to earn forgiveness for sins I've committed because I was just supposed to be praising God to begin with. When I love my neighbor, I haven't done anything that suddenly makes me worthy of being forgiven for the times I didn't love my neighbor. I was just supposed to be loving my neighbor the whole time. When grace is offered, there is an expectation of return. And I think that's something that's often missed today. We have an idea that, well, if there's an expectation of some return, that's a gift with strings attached. And we say, well, that's not a gift at all. However, as we go through scripture, we recognize that, that that's really how this gift was used. There's, there is an expectation. When you have, you know, when you, Adam, as my king, have forgiven my betrayal, and my treason, is there not an expectation that I will not ever betray you and commit treason again? When, when we see that, we don't at all think that there's no, well, oh, well, that must not have been a gift if you expected him not to betray you again later. Well, no, it was very much a gift. But yeah, there was an expectation. I have forgiven you, your betrayal, your treason. I expect loyalty from you. When by grace I let you use my car, I have every right to tell you, but look, don't use it as a getaway car and a bank robber. I'm, I'm allowed to tell you that because it's my car and you're using it by my favor, by my grace. And so we recognize that that idea of the, the reciprocal nature, the, 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 the return that we give because of the grace that was offered to us. Trying to bring this down for me as the person that's walking through my life, struggling, wanting to serve the Lord. I, if, if there's something I want to make sure to get across to anyone and everyone as they're thinking about grace. Grace is never offered as permission to sin. And what grace, grace never gives me permission to go sin once I've turned to Jesus. It always gives me permission to turn back to Jesus once I've gone and sinned. Let me say that again. Grace never gives me permission to sin once I've turned to Jesus. It always gives me permission to turn back to Jesus once I've gone in sin. What a great and hopeful and redeeming thought. Thanks again for listening to Preach Impediments. I hope this interview with Edwin Crozier has been helpful to you. We always seek your comments. You can contact us through our website at preachimpediments.com or look us up on Facebook and leave comments there. Share, like, comment, listen to some past episodes. And of course, we invite you back to listen on Thursday as I spend a little more time with the concepts of grace. Until next time.